Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC information. And we are back with more UFC this weekend. I'm very thankful, very happy. I always love when UFC is going down. It makes my weekend a bit better. I actually do have a busy weekend. I'm actually going back home, going to see my folks, see my dogs, it's going to be lots of fun, you know. So some of the first years where I'm away more at college, I think it's because I don't see my girlfriend that often. That was one reason I was going home. But now, down here in Mankato, living it up every weekend. But, you know, got to make some time to see my folks love and miss them. This Saturday, we have UFC Vegas 80, headlined by Grant Dawson and Bobby Green. Grant Dawson, currently the number 10 lightweight in the UFC going to be a good event overall. It's one of those fight nights where there's not a lot of ranked fighters per se. I believe there's only one, but the amount of unranked talent you're going to be seeing on this card is exquisite. Should be a very good one. We're going to be giving a full breakdown, my full predictions for every fight on the card. We're also going to be doing my NFL week five predictions. I can't believe it's week five. I feel like week one just started, but it's just crazy how fast the month goes by. Time is flying by, you know, I'm very much aware of how little time I've left at college, which is why I appreciate it. And it's always good to see something like this podcast or like just my socials in general where I can go back and look and just see how much has changed in a, the, a year amount of time. I don't know, just the amount of time that I've been doing things. So that's always fun. We're also going to be recapping Dana White's Contender Series Episode 9. I thought it was actually Episode 8, but I must have been a week behind. The season finale of uh, Season 7 is going down next week. So that should be a good one. We also have a surprise topic on this episode. Make sure to stay tuned for that. And yeah, just going to be talking about all sorts of activities. Activities. Very blessed, very happy. It's currently Thursday, so by the time most people listen to this, I'm sure the football game tonight between the Bears and Commanders will have already gone down. But you will, uh, you can go back to this video or this video, this um, episode, as reference to my predictions for the NFL. Yeah, it's a uh, wind. It's been getting more windy down, especially down here in Mankato. I've been noticing that, and it's, I, I don't know why, I think it's because, like, we're more elevated or something, but it's, it's made walking to class very annoying, especially, so that's just a little side note that I had to get out there, just a vent, if you will, I think that's what women call it, but I'll tell you something that's been going on that I don't really follow as much, but I am now more aware, is the MLB Playoffs have actually begun, and my Minnesota Twins, you know, I call them my Minnesota Twins, but even though I don't follow baseball, they're, they're my home team state, I'll easily bandwagon them, or hop on the train, is in the playoffs, and they won their wild card matchup and will be advancing to the quarterfinals to take on the Houston Astros. They beat the six-seed uh, Toronto Blue Jays 2-0, to zero in the series. Um, so good for them. I saw a lot of people posting about it. I saw some people I knew were at the game. That's incredible, man. That's super awesome. Elsewhere in the MLB postseason, we have the Texas Rangers. They beat the Tampa Bay Rays 2-0, swept them in the wild card. They'll be taking on the number one seeded Orioles. Baltimore Orioles, right? I believe so. I don't really know. I don't follow baseball. That's the um, American League Conference. So we'll have Twins and Astros, Rangers and Orioles. I'll predict that the Orioles and Twins 
go to the uh, semifinals or the ALCS championship. I don't really know baseball terminology. I uh, I know a couple of my buddies, they play baseball. They would probably know more about this. You know, I've had some NHL experts on. Could always get an MLB expert on the podcast. In the NLCS, we have the Atlanta Braves taking on the Phillies, Philadelphia Phillies, Pittsburgh Phillies. I don't even know. They beat the Miami Marlins. The Phillies did 2-0, swept them. in the Wow, every wild card matchup was a 2-0 sweep. Good for the Phillies. Um, and they will be advancing to the uh, quarterfinals to take on the Braves. I'll probably predict the Braves to win that. And then we also have the L.A. Dodgers taking on the Arizona Diamondbacks, who upset the Milwaukee Brewers. I actually know one of my one of my uh, buddies down here. He is a Brewers fan, so unfortunate for them, but good for the Diamondbacks. I don't think they'll beat the Dodgers, if I know baseball correctly. The Dodgers are always good, so there's that. So, I mean, I might check on this occasionally just to give, like, updates and stuff, but... I mean, I'll just pick the Twins and the Dodgers to make the uh, World Series because I don't really know anything. The next games, I believe, are Saturday. I think uh, the Twins are at the Astros. And then uh, Sunday, they'll also be playing game two. at the. I believe it's now best of seven. Or is it best of five? I, I truly have no idea. I apologize. But actually, yeah, isn't it best of three, best of five, best of seven? Or am I just making stuff up? I don't know. It's the, it's the MLB it is what it is. I mean, the last Twins player that I remember was, um, oh, he was, I mean, Miguel Sano. I know him. I also know, I'm trying to think of, there's some guy that started with a D, maybe Dover or someone who's like a second baseman. I, I truly have that. Joe Mauer. I mean, I do not know anything about baseball. I personally find it kind of boring. I feel like it's, I mean, I know they've been trying to improve the game. I know I was being pushed this summer to go to some games, and I just had no interest. It just it doesn't interest me at all. But you know, maybe maybe I'll give a, a shot next season, or I'll try and get a postseason ticket, depending on how expensive they are. If the Twins keep doing well, which makes me happy when a Minnesota team does well, especially if it's one of the major four sports: baseball, hockey, football, and basketball. Basketball not looking too good. Football not looking too good. Hockey, I feel good about this uh, wild team from what I've heard this year. As for Twins, I mean, hey, they may have passed the first round of the playoffs. Good for them. Let's get into some new fighting news that has been dropping recently, starting off with a big RIP to my UFC Minnesota, my UFC Minneapolis card, December 2nd, as the UFC has apparently requested a license to host an event in Austin, Texas. On that date, returning to Austin, Texas, to my dismay, not coming to Minnesota. I don't understand why. You've already gone to Texas. You've already gone to Minis, um, to uh, Austin, Texas specifically. Why not come to Minnesota? But, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm feeling like Kamaru Usman is going to be taking on Bilal Muhammad for that event, in the main event, but I could, I can't say personally. I do not know. But it's not going to be in Minnesota, so I am a bit more damp on it. But, I mean, that does save me like $1,000 because I was going to ball out for a ticket. So we can buy more fun stuff down here at college, like drink drinks. Yes, not going to say what kind of drinks. Actually, I can. I'm 21. Special fun drinks. And just uh, other gifts like to uh, buy for people. I have no idea. I am uh, I'm very torn. I'm very, uh, very upset. I was wishing that it would be in Minnesota, but at last it's not. 
I will get into some more interesting news as UFC 297 is rumored for uh, Toronto, Canada on January 20th. Main event's going to be Volkanovski versus Iotopira. That's right, Alexander Volkanovski, your current featherweight champion, the number, what is he, two? Number two pound-for-pound fighter in the world will be taking on the number five featherweight, Iotopira, apparently, in the main event for that card. Iotopira, by the way, is 14-0 with nine first-round finishes. This guy is a killer, and Alexander Volkanovski is just, he, it don't get much better than him. He is the staple of the UFC, and he's on the cover of UFC 5, which will be coming out in 20-some days or something. Very good for him. Also on that card, we are going to be having a featherweight clash between number four ranked Arnold Allen and number nine ranked Mosafar Evlov. Arnold coming off of a competitive fight against Max Holloway back in April of 2023. Put up a good fight through five rounds but couldn't get it done. And that's been his only loss in the UFC so far. So that guy is super good. But he's taking on Mosafar Evlov, who's on a 17-fight win streak. Um, by the way, no losses. He's 17 and oh, seven of those are finishes, I believe. And in the UFC alone, he's like on a, he's like seven and no or six and no or something. Very, very talented. That should be a competitive matchup. Also rumored for maybe not so much of that event, but for December as well is Sean O'Malley's next fight. That's right. The new star, the bantamweight champion, Sean O'Malley is rumored to be fighting number six ranked Marlon Vera, the only man to ever beat him in MMA. That fight could potentially be the co-main event at UFC 297, or it could be going down at UFC 298 in February. Going to be very interesting to see that Sean O'Malley is on like a five-fight win streak, coming off a huge knockout of Aljamain Sterling. And as for Marlon Vera... His only loss since 2021, I believe, is a split decision to Corey Sanhagen. So he's very talented, Marlon Vera. Um, also rumored for January is Henry Cejudo versus Marab Dueva Shelley, number two and number three ranked in the men's bantamweight division. Marab 16-4 and four on a nine-fight win streak coming off, his, coming off his biggest win of his career against Piotr Jan and Henry Cejudo. Almost beat Aljamain Sterling. Took him to a split decision. We know how good he is. The first ever double champ to defend both belts, I believe. it. Actually, I think Daniel Cormier did that. But uh, Henry Cejudo was most recently the one to become a double champion. Love both of those fighters. That could either be a fight night. You could put it on UFC 297. I'm okay with it either way. And the last news, which actually dropped today, October 5th, um, uh, Thursday, was a lightweight clash for UFC 296 on December 16th of this year between number 8-ranked Armin Tezukrian and number 4-ranked Benil Dariush. A huge event, a huge uh, fight in the lightweight division. Very much looking forward to that matchup. Without a doubt, I mean, Benil is coming off a tough round 1 TKO loss to, um, what's his face? Uh, Charles Oliveira. I was mind blanking there for a second. The man who's fighting on the next pay-per-view, Charles Oliveira. But uh, before that, he had been on like a seven-fight win streak. He's taking on Armin Suzuki and Armin, an absolute beast of a man. In his UFC debut, he took pff, Islam Makachev to a crazy decision one fight of the night. Since then, he's only ever lost uh, a split decision, I believe, to Matus Gamrot. And didn't he lose another fight, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, I can't I can't recall, but I believe Armin ran into some... Or maybe I'm thinking of um, Matus Gamrot, I think it is. But um, 
yeah, Armin, super talented. Um, yeah, it was just he's only lost to Matusa, Gamrot, and to Armin Sukrian. So this guy is super talented. He's only ever fought the best. And he's also, um, what is he, 20 and 3. Seven first round finishes, 13 finishes of his 20 victories. Armin Akates. He's got a wacky nickname. I don't even think I can. I don't even, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that nickname, but you know what? It is what it is. Uh, very much looking forward to all of those fights. But let's get into our uh, re- let's re- let's recap Dana White's contender series right now. We'll uh, we'll spread out all of our fighting talk a bit and our surprise topic for this episode. So Dana White's contender series, if nobody knows, goes down um, every Tuesday for a ten week period. On Tuesdays, um, five fights take place. Sometimes four, like tonight. And uh, if you win, or sometimes even if you lose, Dana White, if he's impressed with you, he'll give you a UFC contract. He's been very generous this season, and it's been a very good season of fights. And I was able to catch some of them, catch all the news, catch all the info on Tuesday's fights. So let's recap them. We kicked off this event. It was just four fights. There was one uh, injury, I believe, or something, between Mauricio Rufi and Raymond Magomed. Aliyev. Wow, interesting, wacky name. Raymond was 10-1 heading in here. Mauricio, 9-1. And, and I believe Raymond was a huge um, favorite in this fight. Uh, Mauricio was coming in as a underdog. And starting off for the first two rounds, Raymond just getting the better of him in the striking department. Outstriking him 23-12 to 12 in round one, 22-13 in round two. But round three, down two rounds, Mauricio Rufi turns it up. 48 strikes to 15, gets a ground and pound TKO in the final uh, 15 seconds of round number three. The final 15 seconds of the fight, Mauricio Rufi wins. And Dana White, of course, gives him a UFC contract. You love to see it. I was very happy to see that. And um, you know what? Good for you, Mauricio Rufi, in the welterweight division. We'll always take more welterweights. Um, I mean, on this upcoming card, I know for a fact we have one huge welterweight clash between Alex Morono and Joaquin Buckley. So these unranked welterweights, guys, they are very talented. Next up, we went into the light heavyweight division where Magomed Gaziyazalov beat Jose Medina. This was an interesting fight. He closed as over a minus 1,000 favorite on the betting odds. Magomed was just crazy, crazy in the betting odds and did amazing in this fight. Let me read you the fight stats here. 73 significant strikes to 24, 117 total strikes to 48, 6 for 7 on takedowns for the fight. 85% 85% land rate for six minutes of control time. Magomed gets the decision and the contract. Dominates Jose Medina, bloodies him. And Dana White sees something in Jose Medina. And even though he lost, gives him a UFC contract. He said he had that dog in him. He said he had so much respect for him for being able to handle all of it. And I was very, very much surprised that he gave him a contract. But you know what? We'll have you light heavyweights. We need more of them for sure. The light heavyweight division is lacking in unranked talent. And um, But yeah, good for Magomed. Always love having some of them Russian boys back in the camp. Um, very interesting. Heading into our uh, second to last fight, we had Victor Hugo taking on Eduardo Torres Cott. Victor Hugo had had 
27 professional fights before this. Eduardo had had um, 17, so these guys were both very experienced in MMA. Competitive round one, per se, um, pretty much fought in the clinch and on the mat. Both men landing a takedown. Victor gets two minutes of control time. Edward gets one minute. Uh, not really much striking going on. Same thing continued in round two, but Victor Hugo able to get a knee bar on the ground and submits Eduardo two minutes into round number two. Victor Hugo playing off the second ever knee bar on Dana White's contender series, and that was enough for uh, Dana to give him the contract. Good for you, Victor. You improved a 24-4 and four in your professional career, 31 years of age. And man, you know, just knee bars are nasty things. Um, apparently, on my uh, 21st birthday weekend, which I won't touch on too much. You know what happens on your 21st birthdays. I apparently was grappling with uh, my buddy's neighbor, who I actually know, and um, apparently I tore his Achilles doing a ankle lock. So, um, yeah, those things are very nasty when you tear something in your leg or when you're stretching a knee like Victor did. It is nasty stuff. So uh, y'all got to be careful when you're doing some knee bars and ankle bars. I'm uh, not going to touch too much on that. All right, let's get into our final fight, our main event, if you want to call it that. I suppose it is. It's, it's just it's not really a main event, just another fight on the card. We had Rodolfo Bellato taking on Murtaza Talha. Very cool names here. Rodolfo Traitor Bellato. Ooh. This fight was um, very competitive um, from the get-go. A striking battle between undefeated Murtaza and undefeated Rodolfo Bellato. Actually, Rodolfo was not undefeated. I forgot. He had actually been on last season of the Contender Series where he lost to undefeated Vitor Petrino, who's actually tearing it up in the UFC as we speak. But, you know, this was a rematch for him, and... Murtaza was outstriking him in round one, 46 to 30. Uh, Rodolfo, uh, both men went over one on takedowns, but Rodolfo was pushing the pace more, I felt, but Murtaza was just landing more, getting the better of him. The shots looked harder. But some of that corner work, man, the corner work was amazing as Rodolfo comes out in round two, getting the better of him, outstrikes him 92 to 21, and gets a ground and pound TKO. Rodolfo Bellato. Not only wins, gets his redemption, and is going to the UFC. Dana White gives him the contract. You love to see it. I always love when a guy's down in round one, comes back in round two, and rallies. You love to see it. Very happy for Rodolfo. And he gets the contract, man. Good for him. Two, uh, three light heavyweights signed on this card. One bantamweight, that was Victor Hugo. And Mauricio Rufi, the welterweight, was also signed. Very, um, very good contender series. I believe next one, I'll be covering it much more in depth. I'll probably, for uh, the 10th episode, I believe they have six fights or something. So a good way to end on a bang. So we'll be previewing all of those fighters and giving official predictions for the card. I always do my verdict MMA picks on the app. But usually they're not so good because I'm not able to do as much of an investigation as I am with my UFC fights. But uh, yeah, very good Contender Series episode. And always happy to get some extra UFC besides Saturdays. But last week is the final week, so it is kind of sad. But, you know, that's that's just how it goes, man. Life goes by just like that. Not to sound too deep or anything, but, man, that's just how it be sometimes. I'll tell you what else is going to be. It's going to be a beautiful Sunday when we get NFL all day long. Yes, it's going to be a very fun day. Week 5 of the NFL coming up here this Sunday. I mean, I am just 
I'm buzzing about it. The Vikings take on the Chiefs. Going to be a very crazy fight there. Crazy fight. That's why I'm sorry to talk about uh, NFL and uh, UFC on the same thing. I get my words mixed up. No, they'll be playing each other in the 330 spot, I believe. But, um, yeah, we're going to give our official predictions for every matchup coming up now. I wanted to double-check who actually has buys um, this week because um, I believe not every team is playing, if I'm uh, correct, which I believe I am. Speaking of um, football, actually, I'm actually going to the Minnesota Gophers and Michigan uh, Wolverines game, college, uh, Saturday night at the University of Minnesota. Very much looking forward to that. Going to go with my parents. I'll probably stop by and see my um, girlfriend if I, uh, I sh- yeah, I'll stop by and see her. And yeah, it should be a good time. Be able to have some beverages. And uh, I think I'm going with my dad's coworkers. So that should be that should be a very interesting thing. I was at a Gophers game last weekend when they beat Louisiana. That was very uh, that was very fun. That was a fun game. Not LSU, Louisiana, the Raging Cajun. So not as good. Getting back in the um, NFL world, yes, the Cleveland Browns. Los Angeles Chargers, Seattle Seahawks, and Tampa Bay Buccaneers all have buys. I'll say all those teams could use some buys. Seahawks kind of on a roll right now, but the Browns, Chargers, and Bucks really should assess what's been going on in their uh, locker rooms. Anyways, let's get into our uh, NFL Week 5 predictions. Kicking off Thursday night, as you all know, with um, the Bears and the Commanders. And before I begin, um, I just want to say that, unfortunately, NFL legend and uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer and former uh, Bears player Dick Butkus has passed away at the age of 80. Uh, Big rest in peace to him. Uh, He's an absolute legend. I mean, I used to see him in movies and stuff. Uh, Dick Butkus, rest in peace. But yeah, the Bears 0-4 taking on the Commanders. I mean, just, oof, I don't even know what to make of this. Commanders are at 2-2, two and two, the Bears are at 0-4, oh one of the worst teams, if not the worst, in the NFL. It has been just an atrocious start to the season for this uh, Bears team. I, I don't really know what to tell them, you know. I, J- Justin Fields, you know, it's, it's easy to hate on him. It's harder to love him. Uh, it's just, oof. The uh, Bears are actually averaging 15.7 points per game. Washington Commanders averaging 19.3 um, opponents yards per game, points per game, and yards per game. Not good for the Bears. The Bears are giving up 407 yards per game through their first four weeks of football and 35 points per game. That is absolutely crazy. But um, uh, both teams committing 18 penalties to kick off this season. You know, I, I feel if their Bears are going to win anything, it would be a road game on Thursday Night Football. But I just don't see that happening. I see Sam Howell. I see Brian Robinson Jr., Scary Terry McLaurin tearing it up. I'm going to give the Commanders the victory in this one, probably by 17-plus points. That's just how I view this matchup. Let's, go, um, let's get into uh, Sunday, though, because, I mean, the— I don't know. I just feel like the Bears and Commanders are going to put out a dud, but they could put out a banger um, matchup. You never know. Kicking off um, our uh, Sunday slate, we're kicking off with an 8.30 matchup. The Jaguars will be taking on the Bills. Why is this one early? Is this going down in London, if I'm not um, mistaken? I mean, usually when games are on at 8.30, 
They are yes, they're actually facing them in London. Jaguars looking for back-to-back London victories potentially. That could be crazy. They picked up a big one against um, the Falcons, if I'm not mistaken. Their last time last week wasn't it week four? They played the uh, yes, they played the Falcons in London. So the Jaguars get back-to-back London matchups. Now I won't lie, I won't lie. This Jaguars team is historically good in London, but the Bills at three and one. Their defense has been looking killer. Their offense has been looking killer. And looking back, their only loss is a punt return to end the game against the Jets. So I got to give the Bills this one. And, you know, like like I mentioned, if there's going to be any place the Jaguars beat the Bills, it's in London at a neutral site. But this Bills team has just too many weapons. I mean, James Cook is coming into his own. you got Dalton Kincaid, Dawson Knox at the tight end position. Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis are two of the best wide receivers in the t- in the league, even, I'll say. And Josh Allen has been looking spot on. And don't even get me started. This defense has been absolutely killer for the Bills, putting up absurd amounts of fantasy football points. We're riding with the Bills over the Jaguars. Getting to our 12 o'clock slate, we have a matchup between two 2-2 two two teams in the same conference, the FC South, the Tennessee Titans, and the Indianapolis Colts. Very torn in this matchup, very even matchup. Both teams have been looking very talented this year. Um, they've also been looking kind of iffy there. I believe Anthony Richardson, the Colts uh, rookie QB, is slated to play. But I will say um, one of the more notable things is that the Titans have been taking on a more passing aspect than they have in years past. I mean, usually it's just been Derrick Henry over and over, but clearly the code has been cracked on that, so they've had to adjust on what they do to score more points. And, you know, they did pretty good last week. They were able to um, pick up a win. I did not think they were going to beat the Bengals last week, but they did. Um, as uh, (laughs) As for the Colts, they had an absolute shootout with the Rams, so both these teams are talented. But I'm going to give the nod to the Titans. I think they steal one from the Colts in Indianapolis. And uh, I think from I think I did an analysis last year and determined that every week, pretty much home teams and away teams split wins. Whether like you're when you're at home, like eight home teams win and eight away teams win. And so I think you should always split that up every week. I think I've seen that stat before. But hey, anything can happen. It's the NFL. Keeping us rolling, we have the Texans at the Falcons. Going to be an interesting battle here. We are in Atlanta, I'll say. Both teams are 2-2. Two and two, But I'll just say something. I, I don't know what it is about this Texans team this year, but I'm really liking them. C.J. Stroud has been coming out as maybe possibly the best, if not second best, rookie QB this season. Damian Pierce doing average, but I mean the wide receivers. Tony Dell, Nico Collins even got... Do they have Robert Wood on the team? I can't. I, I can't even remember. But Nico Collins and Tank Dell, without a doubt, have been looking extraordinary. And Devin Singletary, as a sort of veteran running back in the backfield, I very much like this team. Dalton Schultz doing his thing at tight end. We're going to go with the Texans. But hey, don't sleep on Bijan on the uh, Falcons team. But I mean, Desmond Ritter has been kind of looking rough this year. Next up, we have the 0-4 Panthers against the 3-1 Lions. In Detroit, th- this one's easy. That At least, you know, you're at home. You have a much better team, much better offense and defense. The Lions should beat the Panthers. The Panthers should fall to 0-4. I mean, 0-5, they are currently 0-4, but we'll see. And, you know, Bryce Young hasn't done terrible this year. 
I'll just say he is not living up to number one pick aspirations at the moment. But Adam Thielen's been looking good. Miles Sanders has some good games here and there. I don't know what more to say. It's the Lions, man. David Montgomery's a beast. Jameer Gibbs is looking like an amazing asset to this team. Uh, Monroe St. Brown cooking defenses. Josh Reynolds cooking uh, the backfield. And uh, th this defense, too. I mean, Aiden Hutchinson, an absolute killer on that offensive line. Their cornerbacks are great. We're going with the Detroit Lions, as much as I hate to say it since they're a divisional uh, opponent of mine. Another 12 o'clock game, we have the Saints. The uh, Saints at the Patriots. That's going to be a bad game. Oh, my gosh. Saints at Patriots. Oh, man, a battle between the 2-2 two and two Saints and the 1-3 and three Patriots. I don't know what's been going wrong with the Patriots. They actually just uh, gave up Christian Gonzalez to trade for uh, some guy named JC, I think from Jacksonville. I don't even know what's been going on there. Patriots have been averaging 13.8 points per game. That has to be one of the worst in the league. They've, uh, wow. I will say that the uh, Saints have only had three turnovers this year. That is a pretty impressive stat. Through four weeks, only three turnovers. This Patriots defense was super good last year. I do not think they're as good as, I don't think they're as good as they were last year. The Saints team has some holes. But I think this Patriots team has more holes both on offense and defense. We're going to go with the Saints. We're going with the Saints over the uh, Patriots. And, uh, yeah, just keep it rolling. Keeping us going, we got the Giants at the Dolphins. Uh, do I even have to say who I'm going to pick here? I mean, this Giants team sucks. This Dolphins team is special. We're going with the Dolphins. But I will say, the Dolphins did get kind of humbled. Kind of. They were humbled with um, against their matchup against the Bills last week, where the Bills' defense just was able to outwork them. Now, Tyreek Hill, decent game. Devin Achaney had a good game. Raheem Mostert, uh, Jalen Waddle, Tua Tagovailoa, all performing well. I mean, but when you give up 48 points, I mean, to be fair, the Bills' defense was getting some uh, pick sixes, I believe, from some fumble recoveries. It's still a tough matchup, but there's just no way the Giants beat the Dolphins. That would be the biggest upset of the week. We also have the Ravens and the Steelers to close out our 12 o'clock slate of games. Sorry to my roommate Seth, a huge Steelers fan, but I got to go with the Ravens. I mean, I do not know how the Steelers have even won two games this year. I mean, they're averaging 15.5 points a game. They're coming off a oof, just a terrible loss against the Texans last week never even crossed the 50 yard line it's ugh, man oh man last time they played Steelers did beat the Ravens 24 to 20 in a close game but I mean the, the Steelers are giving up 403 yards to their opponents per game but the Ravens do commit a lot of penalties they've already um, had 28 penalties to their first four weeks 259 penalty yards that's two touchdowns right there I always like to say if you have over 100 penalty yards you've essentially given your opponent a touchdown it's a weird philosophy, but, you know. And I will say the Ravens are only giving up 14.5 uh, points to their opponents, so this defense is pretty good. Steelers' offense is kind of shaky. We're going with the Baltimore Ravens. And, man, Lamar Jackson been looking pretty good this year. Hopefully he doesn't lose any more of his talents. Head into an interesting matchup, and my— Ooh, is this—do I want to say this is my— Hmm, I don't know if I want to call this my upset pick of the week because there are a couple other matchups that could be considered pick, upset picks of the week. So I think I'm not going to say this is my upset pick of the week, but I am actually going to pick the Arizona Cardinals to beat 
the Bengals. That is right. Joshua Dobbs is going to take over as uh, Josh Shiesty. He's Joe Shiesty's dead. It's time for Dobbs Shiesty. I don't know what's been going on with this Bengals team. They've been terrible this year, just terrible. Joe Mixon not playing up to standards. T. Higgins is getting hurt. Joe Burrow is looking ugh, just just lame this year, just doing nothing. And Jamar has been doing the best he can with what he's been given. Both these teams have only uh, had two turnovers, which isn't too bad. Points per game, 24 for the Cardinals. I mean, they've already stolen one over the Cowboys, for goodness sakes. And, you know, with this Bengals team, they're coming off of a terrible, terrible loss. Um, last week it was. They should have. Wait, wait, wait did, who did they play last week? Um, the Titans, yes. They should have beaten the Titans last week. They did not. They got cooked. So you already know we are riding with the Cardinals, man. And I don't know why I like Josh Dobbs. It's kind of just like it started as like a sort of like a joke just when I was watching football with all my friends and like just like a meme, if you want to call it that, like, oh, go Josh Dobbs. But now he's been doing his thing despite being one in three. I think the Cardinals are going to beat the Bengals. And hey, who knows? It's, uh, it's just a weird spot when both teams are one and three. Keeping us rolling, we got the Eagles visiting the Rams. 305 on Fox. I mean, Philly 4-0, just been looking phenomenal. This Rams team, they perform well offensively. Their defense does make some mistakes, and you are not stopping this Eagles offense if your defense cannot play to par. So we will be going with the Eagles over the Rams. It could be an MVP season for Jalen Hurts. You never know. MVP is still wide open at the moment. And next up, we have two one and three teams playing. This is going to be an interesting one. The Jets visit the Broncos. The Broncos picked up their first win over the Bears last week. The Jets yet to win with Zach Wilson at QB since week one. I, I you know, I, I'll say that the Jets performed well against the Chiefs. They performed very well. But I'm I'm torn if I'm more impressed that the Broncos were able to rally down 21 against the Bears team because the Bears team is bad, or if I want to give the Jets credit for coming back after being down 17-0 to only lose 23-20 to the Chiefs. I will say I can't really look at the Broncos' stats for like opponents' yards per game, points per game, because it's so skewed from that uh, Dolphins 70-20 to victory. So I'm not really going to look at that, but I will say that the Broncos' team is the whole team as a whole has committed 26 penalties, while the Jets have only committed 10. Both teams have only had five turnovers, though. Um, but uh, just for the fun of it, the Broncos are giving up 458 yards per game to opponents. That is not accurate as of because uh, of that 70-20 victory. But uh, you know what? As much as this Jets team is super talented on defense, even offense against weapons, we're going to go with the Broncos at home taking this one. I'm going to ride with you, Russell. I'm going to ride with Broncos country. And now that I've assessed it, 325 CBS, the Taylor Swift Bowl. The Chiefs visit the Vikings. They're coming to Minnesota, and we're pulling off history, folks. That is right. The Minnesota Vikings are going to end this team. Chiefs are losing to the Vikings. I mean, the Chiefs, I compare them to the Bills. They've just essentially been the same. They lost week one under close game circumstances since then, have looked dominant since. Now the Chiefs, I, I won't lie, they dominated the Bears in week three, but the Jets did give them a run for their money. This Vikings team was able to pick up a big win over the Panthers last week, get our first win of the year, and man, this whole Taylor Swift saga just has me really wanting the Vikings to kick the Chiefs' ass. I'm oh, Pardon my language, but this team is just, a, oh, they're just annoying me at this point. Actually, I saw Aaron Rodgers was calling Travis Kelsey Mr. Pfizer because he like advocating for like a COVID shot. I thought that was pretty funny. 
But hey, we got the number one wide receiver at the moment, Justin Jefferson. And Kirk Cousins is super good. You know, it sucks that Kirk Cousins is going to be next in line to be blamed. But we just ran out of people to blame, unfortunately. Vikings and Chiefs, I mean, pretty, when it comes down to the stats, I will say that Chiefs are only giving up 13 points to their opponents while the Vikings give up 23. Chiefs do score 26 points per game through the first four weeks, and the Vikings have been putting up 22.5. This is going to be very competitive offensively. It will come down to, because I'm sure our defense will have trouble with Patrick Mahomes, but it really comes down to if we can finish. All right, if we can finish, if we can pull off the one-night stand, if you will, finish on the Chiefs, get this victory, give it to me, baby. That's my upset of the week, Vikings over the Chiefs. Let's get into our Sunday Night Football matchup, and it's been the best one of the year so far, the best matchup of the year so far, statistically, for two best teams. We've got the 3-1 and Dallas Cowboys visiting the 4-0 and San Francisco 49ers, 7-20 on NBC. Do not want to miss this one. A little Sunday Night Football action at Levi's Stadium. These two are just juggernauts. The defense for the Cowboys, insane. Both teams putting up 30-plus points per game. Yards per game, both over 360. Opponents' points per game, the Cowboys have only given up 10.3 opponent points per game. 49ers at 14, not too bad. Both teams have only committed one turnover. Okay, that is absolutely crazy. Through the first four weeks of football combined, the offense has only given up one turnover. It's going to be a very close matchup. I could see it going either way, but just because I love Christian McCaffrey, Brock Purdy, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, I'm going with the 49ers to stay at 5-0 and undefeated. But, man, it's all going to come down if they can. Because I feel like the Cowboys' offense is nothing too special. I mean, Dak, Tony, and uh, what's-his-face, CD, are all very talented, but it's this defense that, uh, despite the loss of Trevon Diggs, um, I mean, they've they've been able to handle themselves very well, putting up 30-plus points of fantasy multiple times already. This will be a tough matchup for the um, 49ers, but I believe that it's, it's it's Purdy time. It's McCaffrey time. We're going with the 49ers. Now let's get into our Monday Night Football game, October 9th, going down on uh, ESPN. We got the Green Bay Packers against the Raiders. And, you know, I've elected, I've elected to pick the Packers to win this game in one of my rare times when I pick the Packers. They will be at Las Vegas. So this Raiders team is just not good. Not good. Devontae Adams is good. Josh Jacobs is 50-50. And I don't know what goes on at quarterback, but it's atrocious. They're only averaging 15 points per game. The Packers, meanwhile, are averaging 25 points per game. Raiders have already committed seven turnovers. And uh, I will say that the Packers have committed 31 penalties, which is actually awful. That is actually really awful, Packers fans. Your team really needs to learn how to play the game correctly. But, I mean, I'm going to pick the Packers to win this sort of in a, if they if they win, then my pick is right. But if they don't win, I'll be happy because I, d- divisional-wise, the Vikings are in third. But if the Packers lose and we win, we could easily move up to the number two spot in the NFC North, which we're really going to need as the season progresses. 
I don't really know what much to expect from this. I'll prob I might be watching it. My name kind of busy. I'm actually doing uh, some house tours. I might be living with some uh, people I know next year as my roommate is leaving me. So um, if anyone's in Mankato and needs an extra roommate, let me know. Also gonna be working on my uh, company, Evergrowing Co. Please follow the socials. I'll be trying to post more on them. Being the social media manager for that, you know. Um, and I also got to post on my main Instagram. Now that I think about that, if anyone has any good ideas for like um, shoots to do or just how to post get some instagram photos like take them let me know because i would greatly appreciate that but yeah we're gonna be riding with the green bay packers unfortunately you know it doesn't bring me any joy to say i'll be riding with the uh, green bay packers but it's it's better than it's better than uh I don't, actually i don't even know what to say it's not really good at all riding with the green bay packers gosh they annoy me Packers fans annoy me. I, do, I wonder if Vikings fans annoy people. I feel like we're a very, we're a very modest group, if you will. Uh, it's of fans. I, at least I like to think so. I mean, I think that we are very polite here in Minnesota. We uh, we like uh, we like to be nice. I have, I have no idea. You know, you ever get to that point where you're just like a thought's on your brain and it just leaves. But there it is, folks. My predictions for Week Five of the NFL. We'll recount. We'll recap them real quick. Commanders over Bears on Thursday Night Football. We're going with the Bills over the Jags in London. Saints winning. Titans winning. Ravens winning. Lions. Texans. Dolphins. Cardinals over Bengals. Eagles to go to five and zero. Broncos over Jets. Upset of the week. Vikings over Chiefs. 49ers in the game of the week against the Cowboys. And on Monday Night Football. As an away team, we'll go with my uh, divisional rival, the Packers. So, yeah, those are all the picks. Let me know what you guys all think. I'm always interested to see what other people view and how other people think they're going to do when it comes to predicting. Um, I believe I had an amazing week last week. I went 12 for 16, 12 for 16 on my predictions. It's not too bad, only four wrong. If you were to cook up a 12-man parlay with the teams I picked, that, yeah, you would have done pretty good. would have done pretty good, so... I'm going to actually take a quick break, but then we're going to be back with a surprise topic of the episode. Might be a bit of a long one, but it'll be a very interesting one. Stay tuned. And we are back like we never left. You know, I always feel like I never have to say I'm going to go do something. I can always just like pause, but I just feel like it's more fun saying like, oh, I'm going to go somewhere. But you listen to it. I just come right back. I don't know. That's super, super childish and cringy, but it is how it be. I guess it is how it be. Some excellent grammar there from me. Ooh, that rhymes like Dr. Seuss. But yes, our surprise topic of the episode. You know, I always got to give you some form of surprise topic, give you something to think about. And this one, this may be a heavy one. It's going to be a bit of a long one. But, you know, last one we dove into the conspiratorial frame of mind. Bit of an awkward segment, but I figured I'd go more, try and find like a specific conspiracy to talk about. And this week we have the Kennedy assassination. So... Sit back and uh, listen to a bit more info about the Kennedy assassinations. It's, uh, you know, certainly a controversial thing. What, 60 years later, still talked about, still debated about what happened. And man, I don't know if we're ever going to find out what happened, but we can still dive into it. The assassination of John F. Kennedy is a watershed event in recent American history, a generational touchstone in trauma like the destruction of the battleship USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898. The attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, or the events of September 11th, 2001. Except that, unlike any of these uh, catastrophes, Kennedy's killing did not provide the country with a 
with um, an, an account for the lasting wound it left in the body politic for its stubborn refusal to heal, because we just can't heal from this, oddly. Viewed retrospectively, d November 22nd, 1963 marks the line of demarcation between Henry Luce's triumphalist American century and the painful present period of perceived American decline. Between the certainties of the Cold War and the national crisis of co confidence born of Vietnam, I mean, Watergate was going on, and the unfinished revolution of the civil rights movement, armies of investigators, official and unofficial, professional and amateur, crackerjack and cracker-brained, have put everyone and everything remotely connected to the assassinated assassination of uh, JFK under a microscope in the intervening four-plus decades. Every cubic centimeter of Dallas, Texas's uh, Dealey Plaza, the grassy knoll, the triple underpass, the wooden fence, has been gone over with a fine-tooth comb, and seemingly everyone who turned out to watch the presidential um, motorcade that fateful day has been interviewed. Um, 544 Camp Street, the New Orleans address that Lee Harvey Oswald stamped on the fair play for uh, Cuba leaflets he was seen distributing on August 9, 1963, and uh, 531 Lafayette Street, which was a different street address, but the same building, just like a different entrance, where the hard-drinking, uh, virulently anti-communist white supremacist Guy Bannister, who was a retired FBI agent and fired New Orleans cop turned private investigator, he rented his office, is, is actually now a prominent landmark in the dreamscape of the collective American unconscious. Of, uh, I mean, leave Harvey Oswald, obviously the suspect of the murders, and of course, um, Guy, who investigated afterwards. Almost immediately after he was inaugurated, President Lyndon Baines Johnson convened the Warren Commission and charged it to evaluate all the facts and circumstances surrounding the assassination and the subsequent killing of the alleged assassin, which was so suspicious, just out in plain sight, the killer dies, oh. The members of this um, uh, uh, investigation were Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, who um, lived from until 1974, he was born in 1891, quite the life. U.S. Senators Richard B. Russell, John Sherman Cooper, a Democrat from uh, Georgia and a Ken Kentucky Republican, so they were getting both sides. U.S. Representatives Hale Boggs, who was a Democrat from Louisiana, and General R. Ford, the Michigan Republican, who had actually become the country's 40th vice president and 38th president without being elected to either office or a decade later. Very odd. Also appointed were CIA Director Alan Dules and the establishment figure in all-around Washington wise man John J. McCloy, who was uh, an ex-war secretary and presidential advisor, who'd actually um, held high positions at the World Bank, the Chase Manhattan Bank, um, and the Council of uh, Foreign Affairs, as well as being with the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. So, you know, um, he was in some sketchy eyebrow-raising, um, uh, uh, what am I trying to think of, groups, you know, stuff that conspiracists love. The Warren Commission, which was this commission, submitted its final report to the president just 10 months later on September 24th, 1964. In it, they confidently declared that they had found no evidence that either Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby was part of any conspiracy, domestic or foreign, to assassinate President Kennedy. Yeah, right. Although Oswald, an ex-Marine who had made an abortive attempt to defect to the USSR, so he actually tried to escape to Russia only to return to the U.S. with a Russian wife, and who was actually known to have at least tangential uh, associations with pro-Castro, Fidel Castro groups, was not unknown to the FBI and CIA. All of the evidence before the commission established that there was nothing to support the speculation that Oswald was an agent, employee, or informant of the FBI, the CIA, or any other governmental agency. 
Oswald was the proverbial lone nut. His killer, a Dallas strip club owner whose gangland associations connected him, at least by inference, to individuals and organizations that had numerous motives and means to kill the president. Cuban anti-Castro insurgents who felt abandoned after the Bay of Pigs disaster. Oh my gosh. Mafioso with Cuban investments of their own who resented uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, um, who was um, actively trying to persecute them. And he actually, uh, they actually received favors after they provided tactical assistance to the CIA. You know how the mafia be. Um, it was not the most stable. He was not the most stable of individuals at his best, Jack Ruby. Mounting financial troubles and a self-prescribed regiment of diet pills had pushed him into psychosis. Ruby didn't silence Oswald at the behest of a third party. He could be taken as word, the commission concluded, when he said that he killed Oswald to redeem the city of Dallas, to show the world that Jews have guts, and to spare Jacqueline Kennedy the ordeal of having to sit through her husband's murderous trial. It just sounds like nonsense. Even just reading it, you know it's all lies. The Warren Commission left some, but not much, wiggle room. Because of the difficulty, difficulty of proving negatives to a certainty, the possibility of others being involved with either Oswald or Ruby cannot be established categorically. It averred, but if um, there is any evidence that it has been beyond the reach of all investigative agencies and resources of the United States and has not come to the attention of this commission, the case was then closed. Yet neither closure nor consensus has been achieved. According to a Fox News poll conducted on October 2003, so 20 years ago, a month before the 40th anniversary of the assassinations, 66% of the American public believed that Oswald was part of a wider conspiracy. 74% believed that there had been an official cover-up, which was actually um, um, Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment and Edward J. Epstein's Inquest were books that uh, sharply questioned the findings of the Warren Commission. They were actually bestsellers as early as 1966, and hundreds of other books followed after that. That same year, 1966, New Orleans Grand Standing District Attorney Jim Garrison, who had died in 1992, brought charges against Clay Shaw, who died in 1974. He was a decorated military veteran and prominent New Orleans businessman and unsuccessfully prosecuted him for his alleged involvement in a right-wing conspiracy to assassinate Kennedy. Oliver Stone's epic movie JFK, which came out in 1991, recounts a sensationalized, highly tendentious I believe it's tedious, actually, account of the Shah prosecution while also incorporating any number of other conspiracy theories. Its gist was that America's secret ruling class, the hidden powers that lurk behind our political institutions, killed Kennedy when they realized he was prepared to cut short America's military adventure in Vietnam, which would have cost them uncounted billions in war profits. I believe that's kind of what I believe. I think that's what my beliefs is that he was killed since he was trying to stop the war. He was going to kind of expose people that were being shady in uh, Washington. I think it's kind of what I align with personally. One month and three weeks before Sagan fell to the communists on uh, March 6, 1975, ABC TV broadcast the Zapruder film, the 26.6-second home movie that provided the most complete visual record available of the shooting. It was the first time the American public had had the chance to see it in its entirety, and it seemed to support the contention that one of the bullets that struck the president had been fired from a different direction than the Texas School Book Depository. Shortly afterward, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was convened. Well, what do you know? Another department to cover up something. In the dozen years since the Warren Commission, the country had changed irrevocably. JFK's brother Robert and the civil rights leader Martin Luther King had both been assassinated. President Richard Nixon had resigned from office in disgrace. Inner city neighborhoods and Ivy League college campuses had been roiled by riots. 
The death of FBI founder and director J. Edgar Hoover unleashed a flood of revelations from his unconventional personal life and his blatant political abuses. I mean, that guy was so corrupt. Starting in 1970, investigative reporters like uh, Christopher Pyle and Seymour Hersh began publishing stories about the illicit activities undertaken by America's clandestine services, including domestic spying, assassinations of foreign leaders, the non-consensual use of U.S. citizens in experiments with mind-altering drugs and more. Um, uh, was it Ultra? MK Ultra? Yeah, that, that's what that is. The U.S. Senate's Irving Committee and later the Church Committee was not only confirmed these horrors, they confirmed these, but they came up with bombshell revelations of their own. Yet CIA Director Alan Dulles had been a member of the Warren Commission and J. Edgar Hoover had been one of its chief sources of information. The time was clearly ripe for a closer look at all the evidence. The House Committee released its final report on March 29, 1979. While it didn't exonerate Oswald Lee Harvey, who fired three shots at JFK, apparently, it stated the second and third shots he fired struck the president. The third shot he fired killed the president, and it didn't implicate any domestic agencies or foreign governments, neither FBI, CIA, Secret Service, Soviet Soviet Union, the Cubans, the anti-Castro groups, nor the National Syndicate of Organized Crime, the Mafia. It didn't conclude that Oswald had acted alone. Far from it, they said. The committee believes, on the basis of the evidence available to it, that President John F. Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The committee is unable to identify the other gunmen or the extent of the conspiracy. What what manner of conspiracy? I mean, come on. They, this is just nonsense. An official committee put, put out that statement I just said. With the exception of Don DeLeo's Libra film in 1988, which is enormously convincing in its depiction of a rogue CIA conspiracy gone awry, most alternative explanations of the assassination were poorly thought out, unfortunately. But Libra is a work of fiction. Most staples of Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory turn out not to hold much water when they're submitted to objective examination. The evidence that Oswald, an ex-Marine marksman, both could and did fire the three shots that the Warren Commission said he did within the time frame that he is purported to have fired them in is at least as convincing as the off-sided and sedatorial reports that he shouldn't have hit the broadside of a barn with a shotgun. The Warren Commission's much-maligned magic bullet theory, oh my gosh, it's so absurd. The work of the commission's junior counsel, Arlen Specter, whom Pennsylvania would elect to the U.S. Senate in 1980, he's the one that came up with it. It contends that the same fairly intact bullet passed through JFK's neck and John Connolly's shoulder, wrist, and thigh turns out not to be far-fetched at all when you see how bullets fired through cadavers have behaved under similar circumstances. Now, that's the dumbest theory ever. I just, that is, doesn't even make sense. And that never happens in any other situation. The idea that the conspirators have been bumping off potential witnesses before they can testify, as many as 77 altogether, 26 of them in 1977 alone, according to conspiracy theorist Jim Mars, is hard to take seriously. Why would they have waited so long? I don't know. Maybe new evidence coming out. More to the point, why didn't they kill Jim Mars instead? Well, compared to Donald Trump, you know, it's easier to eliminate lower-level people than go for the headman who says everything. Silencing a gadfly like Jim Mars would deliver much more bang for the buck and surely would have been easier to pull off than the murder of a president. Kennedy conspiracy theories tend to posit too much particulance, carrying out too many plots and they don't account for contingencies. They illogically presume an all-powerful police state that is unaccountably lax with its most dangerous enemies, and they overestimate people's ability to keep secrets. You know, I actually watched this film on um, YouTube called Everything is a Rich Man's Trick. 
And it kind of shows how people are bad at keeping secrets, bad at covering up things. And at the end of the day, we're all human and make mistakes, even the most powerful people. I encourage everyone to check that out. And yet for all that, the House Committee's conclusion is not unreasonable. It acknowledges that there is something fishy seeming at the heart of a matter, while at the same time accepting that the whole truth will most likely never be known. Isn't that unfortunate? With all that we know about the CIA's and the FBI's mendaciousness, why should we trust any evidence that they put forward in 1963, especially if they had something to hide? If Oswald had been one of their assets, they almost certainly would have denied it. I can imagine any number of reasons why the results of J.K.'s autopsy would have been suppressed or distorted or alluded to, and not all of them are sinister. Kennedy was a very sick man with an advanced case of Addison's disease, a fact that most of the public did not know at the time. I actually did not know this. Acknowledging the possibility of additional unknown shooters and one or more cover-ups, not the highest levels, nor elaborately or even completely orchestrated, and not carried out with the knowledge or convenience of the Warren Com Commission, is not at all the same thing as endorsing a full-blown conspiracy at the highest levels of power. I still think the higher levels killed him, personally. In 1993, Gerald Posner published the wishfully titled book, Case Closed, which attempted to put the marauds of conspiracy theories about the assassination definitively to rest. It did not. <laughs> Fourteen years later, in 2007, XLA County Deputy District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter in 1974, a best-selling account of his prosecution of Charles Manson, and actually uh, the name of a, uh, oh my gosh, a song by a rock band whose autobiography I read, and um, I can't think of their motley crew. Boom, came to my head. Um, his, uh, his account of the Charles Manson, and in 2008, he published The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. It, who, George W. Bush did do lots of murder. We won't touch on that. A hard-hitting brief for doing just that. Brought out a 1,612-page tomb entitled Reclaiming History, which also thought to close the books on the Kennedy assassination. Bugliosi felt compelled to write his epic defense of the Warren Commission. He said because of the breathtaking disingenuousness of its critics. 99% of the conspiracy community are not, of course, writers and authors. He writes his introduction, Though most of them are as kooky as a $3 bill in their beliefs and paranoia about the assassination, it is my sense that their motivations are patriotic and that they are sincere in their misguided and uninformed conclusions. But that is not at all the case, he says, with the professional muckrackers who have kept the conspiracies in the forefront of the American mind for four and a half decades. Bugliothi is scathing in his assessments of them. Mark Lane, in, um, Mark Lane is, on principle, a fraud. Bart McLean's Blood, Money, and Power, which argues that LBJ masterminded the assassination, is blasphemous and completely false. Oliver Stone's JFK is one continuous lie. These are all books that Bugliosi is saying are all nonsense. Bugliosi, Bugliosi. Is that an Italian name? I feel like it is. He says, is a little like leaving the front porch light on for Jimmy Hoffa, a figure, ironically enough, who is often mentioned in connection with the assassination. Is that enough to warrant all these lies? You know, it's actually funny. We actually talked about Jimmy Hoffa on one of my episodes, a very mysterious death that he suffered too. But what is it about the Kennedy assassination that makes it such an irresistible obsession for disappointed idealists and cynical charlatans alike? Oh, I don't think that's the case. Why has it become a veritable ground zero for paranoid thinking? A quick example. Type the words Kennedy and Jews into Google. One of the first hits I got was an exchange about Michael Colin Piper's Final Judgment, The Missing Link in the JFK Assassination Conspiracy 1998, which towed itself as America's number one banned book. It was actually not banned at all. It's actually been sold through numerous editions. 
Collins, a talk radio host and longtime contributor to the ultra-right-wing Liberty Lobs journal Spotlight, proposes that the assassination was orchestrated by Israel's Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, who lived from 1886 to 1973, after he had learned that Kennedy intended to prevent Israel from obtaining nuclear weapons. Also involves were the gangsters Meyer Lansky and the Anti-Defamation League. I actually know who Meyer Lansky is. Innumerable writers have pointed out the eerie synchronicities, never heard that word, and parallels between Lincoln and Kennedy. Wow. The following partial list, it's just four bullet points, is drawn from the comedian and avid conspiracist Richard Belzer's UFOs, JFK, and Elvis book in 1999. Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln, and Lincoln's was named Kennedy. That That's just, that's odd, actually. Both presidents were elected to Congress and the presidency 100 years apart in years ending with the numbers 46 and 60. Okay, that's kind of odd. Both were shot in the head on Fridays while sitting next to their respective wives and by assassins who were born a century apart in years ending in the number 39. Okay, that is another odd point. And both were succeeded by Southerners named Johnson, and both Johnson's birth dates ended in the number 08. Could be a reach, but that's also very interesting. And now if we are to believe Michael Collins Piper and Lyndon LaRoche, we can add yet another item to this list. Both were the victims of international Jewry. That's right. There's always the Jew- Jewish conspiracy that they run the world. Maybe they do. According to Kanye, they do. Bugliosi ventures a few plausible explanations for America's seemingly bottomless appetite for improbable theories about the Kennedy assassination. We instinctively reject the disproportion between Oswald's sordid circumstances and the outsized consequences of his act. He says, because it seems impossible that a king can be struck down by a mere peasant. Mm, maybe that's the case. Most of us perceive the world through a moral frame. We look up to the lives of great men and women for edification and uplift and a sense of inspiring purpose. He didn't have any of the satisfaction of being killed for civil rights. Jackie Kennedy was said to have blurted out when she was told of Oswald's arrest. It had to be some silly little communist. It even robs his death of meaning. Oh, so she did view herself better. How about that? David Talbot's Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, which came out in 2007, describes Robert Kennedy's early efforts to uncover conspiracy behind his brother's killing. From the very beginning, he assumed it was blowback from one or another of their risky enterprises and associations for which he blamed himself. Had he been elected president in 1968, Talbot says he would have reopened the investigation. Our Robert F. Kennedy's own assassination on June 5, 1968, has sparked its own share of conspiracy rumors. On the Wilder Edge, Sharon Sharon, the Palestinian gunman who was arrested and connected for the murder, has been said to have been an innocent patsy, a Manchurian candidate programmed by the CIA and activated by the mysterious beautiful woman in a polka dot dress he was observed talking to shortly before the shooting. I've actually, you can actually hear more about that in the YouTube video I told you about. There are questions about Sharon's gun, too. It only held eight bullets, but it left 28 bullet holes in the pantry and wounded six people. If you didn't know, RFK was shot in the kitchen. Audio expert Philip Van Prague and forensic scientist Robert Joliag analyzed an audio tape of the shooting that was unknowingly captured by reporter Stanislaw Pruniski in their forthcoming book, An Open and Shut Case. They claimed to have isolated 13 or 14 separate shots, some of them with acoustic char- char- characteristics that suggest uh, they came from different directions. Oh, there probably were more than one shooter. Their conclusion has already been sharply questioned. Um, they question everything. As Jeffrey Morrison, uh, as Jefferson Morley wrote in the Los Angeles Times in 1991, the assassination of John F. Kennedy provides a kind of national Rorschach test of the American political psyche. What Americans think about the Kennedy assassination reveals what they think about their government. 
Clearly our government has much to answer for. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know, man. There's just a lot of things. There's a lot of conspiracies around the Kennedy's assassinations. I'll say with RFKs, it was in private. They found him. It was a very tragic event. It's crazy that his son is now running for president this year. I haven't really heard much about him yet. They've kind of been silencing him. I also haven't really been following any debates as of late. But um, JFKs, man, broad daylight. They have a tape. Um, I have my own beliefs about what could have potentially happened. But, man, it's just tragic. It's just crazy. We can revisit this 60 years later. That's right, the 60-year anniversary happens um, November 22nd. That'll probably be over Thanksgiving break. Wow. Just wow, man. Just absolutely crazy. But yeah, that's your surprise topic. That's your guys' surprise topic for the episode. I mean, we could go on for hours about that. It is it is a absolutely crazy conspiracy. It is absolutely nuts. But man, it's it's in the past. Nothing to do about it now except speculate, unless we have someone who devotes their life to determining what happened. Some people do that. Some people do that. I hope you are all surprised with that. The Surprise Jet Podcast. I always, I always love my little intro, and hey, this is part of the part of the episode. Always finding new surprising topics for you guys. Without a doubt, I believe we should dive into. Our UFC predictions for this event. Let me pull that up and uh, get my picks coming at you. Alrighty. So the 11 fight main card this Saturday will be going down Saturday night. It's called UFC Vegas 80, the 80th event held at the UFC Apex, which is sort of their performance institute. Not a big crowd event. It's going to be a headline by Grant Dawson, Bobby Green, as I mentioned earlier. Super, uh, super interesting main event. Kind of just came together last minute. But, you know, we got a lot of prelim fights to get through, a lot of main card fights. Let's get into it. You know, it was originally a six-fight main card fight, and I believe they cut one of the fights to the prelims, which is pretty funny, but let's get it into it. So we kick off the night with a woman's flyweight matchup, and they always be throwing the women on the opening fights of the prelims. So it's funny. We got Montana De La Rosa taking on J.J. Allrich and the 125-pound division. Um, Montana 12, eight and one JJ 12 and six, um, two inches in height for Montana, five, seven to five foot and one inch in reach 68 inches to 67 orthodox stance for Montana Southpaw for JJ Aldrich, JJ coming off a win over Leong Na back on August 26 in Singapore, picked up her first finish in the UFC, I believe, or something like that. Been around since 2016. I mean, I'd say the most notable people she's fought. She's uh, been TKO'd by Macy Barber and been uh, submitted by Aaron Blanchfield. You know, she's she's had an interesting career run. Win some, lose some. Biggest win streak was three, which she's had at two points in her seven-year UFC career. She takes on Montana De La Rosa, who's currently on a two-fight losing streak. Last loss to Tatiana Suarez in uh, February of this year. Got finished by guillotine choke, but she's super talented. Before that, had lost to Macy Barber last year. Last win came against Ariana Lipsky by round two TKO back in June of 2021. She's been in the UFC since 2017. Fought in some... Um, let's see, who she fought? She's had a draw against Myra Bueno Silva, who uh, beat Holly Holmes earlier this year. And, uh, yeah, lost to Viviana Rujo. She's fought some good competition. You know what? I'm actually going to give Montana De La Rosa the nod here. We're going to go with Montana De La Rosa by decision. Lock it in, Montana De La Rosa. 
You know, I might actually write down my prelim predictions just so I don't forget them, even though they aren't official. But yeah, we'll ride with Montana. These women fights are always interesting to open up the card. Let's get into the next one because I really like the nicknames for these guys. We got a bantamweight matchup between Arlyokwin, A-O-R-I-Q-I-L-E-N-G, Arlyokwin, whose nickname is the Mongolian Murderer, and he's taken on Johnny Kid Venbo Munoz. Love their names. <laughs> Mongolian Murderer, Algorquin. I can't believe it. I'm so butchering his name. I'm sorry, Algorquin. The Mongolian Murderer is 24 and 10. Johnny is 12 and 3. Two inches in height for Johnny, five foot nine to five foot seven, and two inches in reach, seventy-one to sixty-nine. Both fighters are orthodox. Both fighters are thirty years of age. Johnny been the UFC since twenty twenty is currently two and three, coming off a decision loss to Daniel Santos back in June. Has one UFC finish against uh, Jamie Simmons back in twenty twenty one, submitted him by rear naked chokehold. As for Al Gorkin, he's also uh, he's been the UFC since twenty twenty one. Is two and three. And his UFC debut had a fight of the night. Then he lost to Cody Durden in his next fight. Was on a little two-fight win streak before he got knocked out cold by Eamon Zahabi back in June with a minute into round number one. So I'm probably going to go with... This is a tough one, boys. I mean, pretty similar matchup from both of them. Looking at the stats, I mean, Johnny does like to grapple a bit. Probably shoots for about two takedowns every fight. But, um, you know what? I think we got to go with uh, Johnny Munoz. I mean, coming off of getting knocked out in a minute, that might be still in his head for Al Gorquin. We're going to go with Johnny Kid Vimos. Johnny Vibembo? I don't know. Wacky nicknames for these guys. I'd want a cool nickname. And my goal, Mongolian Murder is a very cool nickname, but I don't know about the Kid Benbo. Keeping us rolling, we're back with another women's matchup in the women's strawweight division. We have Vanessa Lil Monster Demopoulos taking on Kanako Burata. Ooh, Vanessa nine and five, Kanako twelve and two. Five foot two for Vanessa, five foot one for Kanako. Three inches in reach, sixty-two to fifty-nine in favor of Kanako. Vanessa Demopoulos recently turned 35 on September 22nd. Kanako turned 30 on August 10th. Kanako has had two fights in the UFC. She beat Random Marcos in 2020 and lost to Virna Jandaroba by uh, injury. In, um, actually, I believe Dr. Stoppage after round two back in June of 2021. So it's been almost two year, over two years since Kanako last fight. Last fight, last fought. As for Vanessa, she came. Uh, her three-fight win streak was snapped earlier this year when she lost a unanimous decision to Carolina Kowalski back in May. Vanessa is three and two in the UFC. Dana White's Contender Series alumni has one finish in the UFC. I'm gonna probably go with Vanessa for this one just because it's been kind of a uh, kind of a time off for Kanako. I think Vanessa might be a bit more fresh, so we're going to ride with Vanessa. All these women fights are always a toss-up. Heading into our next fight, it's a flyweight matchup between Nate Mayhem Manis and Matus Bakoa. Men Doka. Nate is 14-3, and Matus is 10-1. and Both have a sub-10-minute fight time. One inch, uh, four inches in height for Nate, 5'10 to 5'6, only one inch in reach, 72 to 70. One, Matus Mendocia, born January 17th, 1999, is 24 years old. Nate Man is 32 years old. 
Matus is coming um, into his second UFC fight. He actually picked up a knockout in 48 seconds uh, last season on the Contender Series. But earlier this year, on the first event of the year, he would lose a unanimous decision to Javid Basharat. But Javid Basharat is super talented, so I will not hold that over him. As for Nate Manis, came into the UFC on a three-fight winning streak, but has lost his last two to Umar Nurmagomedov and Tagir Ulimbekov. Hasn't fought in since November of 2022. He'll be back against Matus. But I think this young guy, Matus Bokoa Mendoza, is going to have his number. We're going to go with Matus by submission. Might even be our um, first, uh, I think my first prediction for a finish of the night will be this Nate Manis-Matus-Mendoka fight. Man, let me tell you, that Nate Manis-Umar Nurmagomedov fight from June 25th, 2022, one of the most dominant performances you'll ever see. Umar Nurmagomedov absolutely destroyed him. Competitive fight, though, between uh, Nate and Matus this time around. Heading into another, oh, our last woman's fight of the evening. How sad, how sad, tear, tear. Woman's strawweight matchup between Carolina Kowalski and Deanna Belbita. Let me just check Carolina's rank. She is, so Carolina is actually the number 15, the final ranked woman's uh, strawweight in the division. And she'll be defending her spot against Diana Diana. Is it D-I-A-N-A? Is it Diana or Diana? I'm going to say Diana Belbita. Both women are 15 and 7, 5'7 to 5'3 height advantage for Diana Belbita, and 4 inches in reach, 68 to 64, in favor of Belbita as well. Both fighters fight orthodox. Carolina, man, 38 years old. She's actually 37, turns 38 on October 15th. As for Diana Belbita, 27 years of age. Diana coming off a win over Maria Oliveira back on June 10th at UFC 289. Outstruck her 106 to 64. Good win for her. Now, as for her UFC tenure, she's 2 and 3. Has losses to Molly McCann, Gloria De Paula. Just pretty much an average career so far. As for Carolina Kowalski, I mean, this has just been a crazy run for her. Debuted in the UFC in 2015, went on a three-fight winning streak. Actually fought Johanna Jajacek for the women's strawweight belt back in 2016. Since then, hasn't done much. Was once on a five-fight losing streak, but those women were Jessica Andrade, Michelle Watterson, Alexa Grasso, Jan Chanin. So some talented ladies. With her uh, UFC career on the line, she would actually submit Felice Herrig back in June of 2022. Since then, she's picked up three wins. And that's right, as we mentioned earlier, her last win came over Vanessa Demopoulos, who fights on the uh, card earlier in the night. And I picked Vanessa to win, so you know I got to pick Carolina to win. She's on a little three-fight winning streak. And as impressive, as impressive as Diana looked against Maria Oliveira this year, I didn't see anything special that warranted me picking her personally. So we're going to be going with Carolina Kowalski. Does she have a nickname at all? No. I feel like she should the Koala. Carolina the Koala Kowalski. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Not really. And we get into our final uh, prelim fight of the evening. It was supposed to be on the main card, but they were like, we don't want this on here. So they dodged it. We got Felipe Monstro Linz taking on Ion the Hulk Kutalaba. Interesting matchup here. Felipe 17 and 5. Ion 17, 9 and 1 with a no contest. Both men, 17 victories. An inch in height for Felipe, 6 foot 2 to 6 foot 1, and 3 inches in reach, 78 to 75. Orthodox for Felipe, Southpaw for Ayan Kutalaba. Ayan, near in 30s, 29 currently. As for Felipe Linz, back on August 17th, turned 38. Wow. Felipe Linz, been in the UFC since 2020, currently on a three-fight winning streak with wins over Marcin Pacino, 
a sub-minute finish of Ovin St. Preux in a unanimous decision win against Maxim Grecian back in June. He'll be putting his little three-fight win streak on the line against Ion Kutalaba, who's coming off of a huge two-minute TKO of Tanner Bozer back in April, which actually snapped a three-fight losing streak for him. It was pretty brutal. He had been finished in all those fights. Man, Ayan Kutalaba been in the UFC since 2016, and who hasn't he fought? He's fought Misha Serkinov, Jared Cannonier, Glover Teixeira, Khalil Roundtree Jr. He holds a win over. Losses to Magomed Ankalaev, draw against Justin Jacoby, Ryan Spann, as I mentioned, Johnny Walker, Candy, and Chukwe. Ions fought them all. I do think he'll take a more grappling approach against someone like Felipe Lins, who likes to strike more. So I'm actually going to go with Ayan Kutalaba by decision. I have it jotted down here, and that's going to be who we're riding with for this one. We're going to go with, uh, yeah, I feel like there's going to be a lot of decisions on the prelims, but once we get into the main card, that's where we're going to see some finishes, which is where we're going right now. A pretty decent main card, I'll say. I'll say when you look at all these fights, these are all typical fight night fights, typical fighters you'd see on a fight night. But they're very entertaining, and they will provide us with good fights. So let's get into it. Actually, let me recap the prelims right now so I don't have to do it later. We're going with Montana De La Rosa over J.J. Aldrich. We'll say decision. Johnny Munoz over Al Gorquin. I'll just say decision for that. Vanessa Demopoulos over Kanako Murata by decision. Matus Mendoka versus uh, Nate Manez. We're going with Matus by submission. I'll say round two for that submission and we're gonna go with carolina over diana by decision along with ian kudalaba over felipe Lins by decision a lot of decisions on this card in my opinion the main card it kicks off in the featherweight division between alexander the great ape hernandez he used to be the great hernandez but he changed it to the great ape for some reason he takes on bill senor perfecto al Gio. Alexander, 14-6. and six. Bill is 17-7. and seven, A three-inch height advantage for Bill. Six foot to 5'9". One inch in reach for Bill. 73-72. to 72. A switch stance for Bill. Orthodox for Alexander Hernandez. Alexander, we share a birthday on October 1st. He most recently turned 31. As for Bill, he is 34. Bill Algeo, ladies and gentlemen, been in the UFC since 2020. Actually fought Brendan Loney, PFL fighter, on the Contender Series back in 2019. And while it's fresh in my mind, because I actually forgot to mention it earlier, Derek Brunson, former UFC fighter who recently actually had a fight scheduled against Roman Dolodize, but pulled himself from it, will be fighting in the light heavyweight division of the PFL next year. Absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy the PFL steals another UFC legend. Back to Bill, I mean... <laughs> I love that I just get sidetracked like that. But I, th I think about him like, okay, if I don't say it now, I'm not going to remember it. Bill, uh, he's got a, what, 4-3 and three in the UFC. He's uh, beaten Spark Spike Carlisle, Joe Henderson Brito. That Joe Henderson Brito win, that's super good. Has a uh, round two uh, performance finish of Herbert Burns. Split decision lost to Andre Feely. Last time he won, he uh, had a rear naked chokehold in a fight of the night against T.J. Brown back on uh, that uh, UFC Kansas card between Holloway and Allen. So, Bill, one fight win streak coming off a finish. He's coming against Alexander Hernandez, another guy who's been in the UFC a minute since 2018. This is year five for him. And Alexander, man, he was supposed to be the next big thing. He finished Benil Dariush in his debut. Then he beat Oliver Robin Mercier, who's actually fighting for the PFL belt coming up. And then got brutally humbled by Donald Cerrone back in 2019. Was a fight of the night, but man, oh man, it was crazy. After that, kind of went win-loss for a while. I mean, he actually got finished by Drew Dober. 
then finished Chris Grusemeyer, then lost to Tiago Moises, finished Mike Breeden, got finished by Renato Mercado, got finished by Billy Corintillo, but recently been, beat Jim Miller. To my dismay, because I like Jim Miller, back in February. This is a close one, guys. This is a very close fight. I don't really know who to go with next, because I know the ability of both of them, but I truly feel this is one of those cards where anything can happen. So we're going to say Alexander Hernandez by decision. We're picking Alexander Hernandez to win by decision. But you know what? I'm not sleeping on Bill Algeo. I know how good Senor Perfecto is. He's very talented overall. But, you know, Alexander Hernandez, he's coming in with this mentality for this fight. He's convinced me he can win. We're going with Alexander, the great ape Hernandez. Kicking us off next is the lightweight division's less. Yes. Oh, no, it's um sort of the appetizer of the lightweight division uh, between Drew Dober and Ricky Glenn. Man, let me just tell you, Drew Dober was ranked. Now he's not ranked. Why? We'll get to that in a second. Drew Dober, 26 and 12. Ricky Glenn, 22 and 7 and 2. Two draws for Ricky. Um, Four inches in height for Ricky, 6 foot to 5 eight. Same reach of 70 inches. Both fighters are southpaw. Drew, birthday on October 19th. Hey, turning 35 years old. As for Ricky Glenn, he is 34 years old. Ricky Glenn coming off of a loss to Christios Giagos. Got knocked out in a minute and a half back in April. For that, he actually had a draw against the guy in the main event, Grant Dawson. For that, he had knocked out Joaquin Silva. So, been an interesting tenure for Ricky. Been in the UFC since 2016. Probably his most notable opponent is probably the guy in the main event, Grant Dawson. I mean, he's gone 4-4 four, four and a draw. So nothing special from Ricky Glenn. Ricky the Gladiator Glenn. Glenn. Drew Dober, though, I mean, this guy's been in the UFC since 2008 back in strike force. I mean, my goodness, he's fought them all, man. Some crazy knockouts. This guy has a lot of knockouts. Holds a loss to Oliver Robbie and Mercier. Fighting for the PFL belt, lost to Benil Dariush, holds the finish over Alexander Hernandez, lost to Islam Makachev, lost to Brad Riddell in a fight of the night. He's knocked out Terrence McKinney in round one, knocked out Rafael Fazeev in round three, knocked out Bobby Green in round two, but most recently was shockingly knocked out by Matt Frivola at UFC 288 in round one. That's right, Matt Frivola, who's currently ranked number 14th in the men's lightweight division. Hey, it happens to the best of us. But, you know, Drew Dober, he's got crazy knockout power. I'm going to have to go with Drew Dober by round one knockout. I'm, I'm just telling you, Drew Dober, even though he's gotten knocked out, he's had some knockouts of his own. So he's sort of one of those fighters where I live by the sword, die by the sword, the perfect kind of fighters for a good event. Keeping us rolling, we're heading to the welterweight division, which is one of my personal favorites of the night. Alex the Great White Morono takes on Joaquin Numansa. Buckley, oh my goodness, Alex 23 and 8, Joaquin 16 and 6, an inch in height for Alex, 5'11 to 5'10, 4 inches in reach though for Joaquin, 76-72, southpaw stands for Joaquin, orthodox for Alex Morono, Alex 30, uh, what is he now, he's 33 years old isn't he, yes he is, as for Joaquin Buckley, 29 years old, still in your 20s buddy, Joaquin, I mean been in the UFC since 2020, his UFC debut he fought Kevin Holland, and after that, that is right, this is the man who has the most viral TKO, the most viral knockout of all time, as he knocked out Impa Consagana with a spinning back kick. Super entertaining stuff from Joaquin Buckley. Yeah, another guy lives by the sword, dies by the sword. I mean, he's been the distance twice in his UFC career. 
Um, just crazy knockouts of Jordan Wright, Antonio Arroyo, Albert Duravi beating a performance tonight. And he's coming off of a huge head kick knockout of Andre Fialo back in May. And before that, his losses were to Chris Curtis and Nazardine Imovov. So some very talented fighters there. Joaquin coming off of a win. So is Alex Morono. Alex been in the UFC since 2016. Wow. Um, fought some guys. I mean, no one really of notable stats. He actually holds a uh, decision loss to Anthony Pettis and was on a four-fight winning streak, including a round one TKO of uh, Donald Cerrone. I believe that was actually Donald Cerrone's last UFC fight. Uh, wins over Mickey Gall, Matthew Semmelsberger. But then in December, UFC 282, a year ago almost, he got knocked out by Santiago Ponzinibbio in round three in a fight he was up two rounds in. Crazy stuff there. He did he did beat Tim Means, though, earlier this year in May by a round two guillotine choke. So he's, these guys are both coming off a win, both very talented unranked welterweights. But I will say, this is what I'm going to say, is that... I think Joaquin Buckley's going to win just because of the power that he possesses. I think it could be one of those scenarios where Alex Morono is up two rounds and Joaquin gets the round three knockout. So we are going to pick Joaquin Buckley to finish Alex Morono by a spectacular knockout in round number three. You know I have to. You know I got to do it. I love Joaquin Buckley. I love Numansa. If I could ever have a podcast guest, it would be Joaquin Buckley. Love that boy. Let's get into our... Uh, Co-main event featuring uh, two exciting knockout artists. We're heading uh, to the middleweight division, the 185ers, as Joe Body Bags, with a Z, Body Bags. Pfeiffer takes on Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Joe is 11-2, and two. Abdul 12-5. and five. Four inches in height for Joe Pfeiffer, 6'2 to 5'10, two inches in reach, 75 to 73. Both orthodox fighters. Joe Younger, he is 27 years of age. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, 38 years of age. Abdul, man, coming off of a big round two knockout of Claudio back on the first event of the year, January 14th. Been in the UFC since 2016. I mean, he's had some good knockouts. He's been knocked out in spectacular fashion, such as when Chaos Williams knocked him out in November 2020. Uh, but yeah, big finishes like the one over Alessio de Cherkio back in 2021. Another guy, dominant here, dominant there. And he actually has a split decision loss to uh, Joaquin Buckley, the guy we just mentioned. But I'll tell you, Abdul, I know you got the power, but Joe Pfeiffer, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness. Here's a guy who back in 2020 was on the contender series, got injured, didn't get a contract, comes back last season on episode one, season six, knocked out a guy in round two. The B. Joe Pfeiffer movement was born, and since then, He's came into the UFC in September 2022 and earlier this year in April 2023 and scored two round one knockouts. Joe Pfeiffer's the man. Give me round two Joe Pfeiffer knockout. Joe Pfeiffer, man. I love this boy. I feel like he could be a real threat. And he's coming off the biggest win of his career over Gerald Mearshart. Finished him in three minutes and 15 seconds back at UFC 287. Love you, Joe Pfeiffer. Just a little quick blurb on Joe. I mean, not much to say about him except that I love him, man. Joe Pfeiffer all day. And let's get into this main event. Okay, Joe Pfeiffer, future middleweight star, I believe. We had Carolina Kowalski earlier as the number 15-ranked woman strawweight. And here's the other second. Here's the other guy who's ranked number 10-ranked Grant Dawson as he takes on Bobby Green. Grant KGD Dawson, Bobby King Green. I believe he was going to legally change his name to King or something. Grant is an impressive 21-1 20 wins, one loss, one draw. 
Bobby Green, 30 wins, 14 losses. He's been around the block a minute. Both are 5'10", 72 inches and reached to 71 for Grant Dawson. Switch stance for Grant. Uh, Orthodox for Bobby Green. Bobby Green is 37 years of age. As for Grant Dawson, he is 29 years ripe. Bobby Green coming off of a big oof, performance of the night finish over Tony Ferguson back at UFC 291 in July. Was able to get an arm triangle with six seconds left in the fight. Bobby Green coming off of that win there. But I mean, this guy has been in the UFC promotions since 2009, back when he was fighting in Strike Force, And then he came into the UFC, and this guy, he's fought Pat Healy. He's fought Edson Barbosa, Dustin Poirier. He's fought, who else? Clay Guida, Lando Venado. He's fought in Rafael Fazeev, Ali Quinta, Nazrat Haxpasrat, Islam Makachev, Drew Dober, who we talked about. Bobby Green has fought them all, coming off of a one-fight win streak. This guy's so entertaining. I love him. This is his second main event. The other one, he stepped in on short notice and fought Islam Makachev. Obviously, that fight didn't go well, but he's back and ready to take on Grant with a full training camp. But it ain't no easy pickings for him. Grant Dawson fought on the first season of the Contender Series back in 2017. Since then, he's picked up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight UFC vi victories. He's 8-0-1. His one draw is actually over Ricky Glenn, who we mentioned earlier. How about that? Coming off of a huge win over Demir Ismagulov back in July. Actually retired him with this. Went three for five on takedowns for 12 and a half minutes of control time. Just absolutely insane stuff from Grant, who actually in round three had four minutes and 32 seconds of control time. This guy is a typical American wrestler. Knows what he's doing. He ended um, Olympic gold medalist Mark Madsen's undefeated MMA record when he submitted him last November. He's also submitted Jared Gordon. I mean, he once he was losing to Leonardo Santos back in March of 2021 and beat knocked him out with a second left on the on the clock. I mean, this guy is super talented. I love to see him, and I honestly believe he's going to catch Bobby Green off the jump with a takedown, take his back. I think sometimes Bobby can get caught early on with a takedown, and I think he even submits Bobby in round one. I think this is Grant Dawson's coming out moment. This is a huge win for him. And plus, whoever's wins, you just have Dan Hooker ahead of you. You could easily move up a spot to number nine position. You could even just stay at 10. This is uh, certainly pivotal to see who will be taking on another uh, top 10 lightweight next. So we're going with Grant Dawson by submission. So let's just recount our picks to end out the episode. What a fun episode. I really enjoy this. My voice is a bit kind of raspy now, but that's how it be. We're going with Alexander Hernandez by decision. Drew Dober by round one knockout. Joaquin Buckley by round three knockout. Joe Pfeiffer by round two knockout. And Grant Dawson by round one submission. It's more fun picking submissions, especially when I predicted like every other fight to on the prelims to be a, uh, what am I thinking? A decision, you know? Decisions, so some, some decisions are fun, but you know, it's in hindsight, it's more fun. I don't know if I'm going to be able to catch this card in full as I'm going to the Gophers in Michigan game on, um, what is that on Saturday? But uh, I'll see. I know Sunday I'm going to try and get back down here, watch some football, party with the boys. No happy, man. I'm just trying to live out my best years of college, man, before it's all over. Time goes by in a flash. And so will this card when once the main card hits and we get a bunch of finishes. So, yeah, what a fun episode, guys. I dropped all my NFL Week 5 picks. Talked about Dan White's Contender Series a bit, some new fights. Obviously, I mean, MLB's going on. Who knows if I'll even, if I'll, who knows if I'll ever look back at MLB stuff. I, I never pay attention to that. And, uh, yeah, we went over ooh, UFC Vegas 80. 
my predictions. My favorite part of the show, I save it for last. And I'll be back, uh, ooh, Monday. I'm very busy Monday. Have some meetings with people. Actually, my Monday schedule is going to be pretty hectic. I don't I have no idea how that's going to go, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, but, yeah, I should be able to get an episode out Monday or Tuesday next week, recapping everything. And then, yeah, of course, we're going to try and stick with this uh, Monday or Tuesday. Then Thursday episode drops. Usually what to expect. And, um, yeah, follow us on uh, Instagram, Surprise Jab Podcast. Subscribe to us on all platforms. And uh, follow Evergrowing Co. if you can. I know it's for uh, it's for my IBE program, my integrated business experience. And uh, I want to beat the other companies. And, and I have a platform like this. I can easily get the message out. So there's all that. Oh, we even talked about JFK on this episode. How about that? The surprise topic was a surprise. How about that? <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening. Very much appreciate it. Stay safe this weekend. Stay blessed. I hope you were surprised.